And so we're going to continue the series, uh, The Wilderness University, and we're going to look at Exodus 19. But before we get into that, I've got just a couple questions to ask you. What is, what is your view of God? How do you, how do you see him? Or how would you describe God? What is your view of God? How do you see him? And how would you describe God? When you think of God, how would you describe God? There's a lot of common ways that people would describe God. And if we pass the microphone around to people in here, we'd have a lot of different descriptions of who God is. Um, And so for the sake of time and us not doing that, I wrote down a list of some common descriptions of God. So God is love. Isn't that one of the most common descriptions of God, that God is love? And when we think of God, we think of love and that he loved, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, God is, God is mercy. He's merciful. And these are, these, these are attributes of God. He's love. He's mercy. He's grace. God is grace. He's the embodiment of grace. God is peace. God is joy. Peace and joy. Isn't that Aren't those amazing attributes of who God is? That when, when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have peace in our hearts. And because of that peace in our hearts, we have joy in our lives. Not temporary happiness. There's a difference between happiness and joy, right? When you're a believer in Jesus and you have peace in your heart about your, your past failures, and you have peace in your heart about your future, about where you're going to go when you die, because you know that you belong to Christ, you have a peace in your heart. God is faithful. That's a great attribute of God. God is faithful. God's not like us who can be unfaithful. It is impossible for God to be unfaithful, to not keep his word. Aren't you guys... Excited about that, that attribute of God? He is a faithful God. What he says he's going to do, he is going to do. It is a part of his nature and his character. He is faithful. God is true. He is truth. He is true. He is the embodiment of truth. When you want to know what truth is, you don't have to look any further than God and his word. God is true. God is good. God is good. I think sometimes we struggle to believe God is good because of the difficult situations that we face in our life. But God is good, even in the middle of difficult circumstances. God is just. God is just. Because he's true, and because he is truth, he is just. And God brings justice. God is righteous. God is righteous. He's Righteous, he's perfectly righteous. Because he's true, because he's just, then he is righteous. Perfectly right. And then this last attribute, and what what we're going to talk about for the most part during this message, is that God is holy. God is holy. Now, we don't talk about God being holy very often in the church, and we don't talk about it very often in our everyday life, but this attribute of God is a fundamental is a fundamental attribute of who God is. This is the the fact that God is holy. It, it, it's it's what separates him from all created beings. God being holy, the the children of Israel, they experience the holiness of God in a very profound way in Exodus 19. We're about to read an account of uh, God telling Moses that he wanted to talk to 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 him. He wanted to talk to Moses and said, Moses, I want you to come up on Mount Sinai and I want to talk to you. But I want to do something different. I want to talk to you, but I want the people to listen. And he specifically says in Exodus 19, I want the people to listen so that they will hear that you talk to me and I talk to you. I want them to hear that I talk to you so that they will trust your word forever. And so God says, this is what we have to do. These people just can't hear my voice. When I talk to you, unless they're prepared first. And so in Exodus 19, it says that God tells Moses, you have to prepare the people. You have to sanctify them. They have to be washed. And and I want you to set a boundary all the way around Mount Sinai, all the way around the mountain. You set this boundary and you tell them after they are prepared that they cannot cross that boundary. Not only can they not cross the boundary, they can't touch the boundary. And if they touch the boundary, it says in Exodus 19, it says that if they touch it, that they are to be shot and killed. I guess shot with a bow and arrow. 
and be killed. It says that if a beast touches, crosses that boundary or, or touches it, they should be killed as well. And so you have an awesome picture of God's holiness that they're about to walk up onto. And so it's a very sobering picture. And so I believe there are some lessons. And this is the premise of this series, right? The premise is what are the lessons that we can learn? What are the, what are the truths we can learn from the nation of Israel and their wilderness journey? And so let's look at Exodus 19, 16 through 19. And this is the view of the holiness of God that the nation of Israel experienced. On the morning of the third day, now this is God told Moses, says, on the third day I'm going to come and talk. You consecrate them, you get them ready, and on the third day I'm coming to talk to you and I want them to listen. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and, and a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. They were fearful because there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud of smoke around the mountain. They all trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They didn't cross the boundary. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And, and as the sound of the trumpet grew, grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Wow. I mean, can you imagine this picture? Just think about this. This is it's the Mount, Mount Sinai. And there's lightning and there's thunder. And it says that the whole mountain shook. There was an earthquake and it shook the entire mountain. And it says that there's smoke all over the place. And there's fire. And the people are afraid. I would be afraid too. I'd go run and hide. This is a picture of the holiness of God. And God is revealing himself to the nation of Israel in a very profound way. He's shaking the mountain and he's sending down fire and lightning and thunders. And it's smoky. It's an amazing picture of who God is. So we can't get very far past this picture in Exodus 19 without coming to the realization of our first truth this morning, which is that God is holy. God is holy. He's pure. He's righteous. He's holy. You know, when, when, when we speak in the English language and we want to emphasize something, when we write something, type it on our keyboard or if you're texting somebody and you want to emphasize something that's very important, what are some things that you're going to do at the end of your sentence? You put an exclamation point. You're going to maybe put it in bold. Doesn't it bother you when people put all caps to everything that they say on their text messages or on their post on Facebook? It's all caps. Like everything I'm saying is ultimately important. Like tone it down a little bit. You're not that. I mean, it's not that important. But in the English language, that's what we do. We, we will italicize. We'll put an exclamation point. We will do all caps. And so when we're wanting to emphasize something as being Utmost of utmost importance. This is what we do. Well, the Jewish people were a little different. Jews would would the Jewish people when they would write scripture, when they would write things down, they would use uh, the a, a, a method called word repetition, a repetition of words when they would want to emphasize something as being very, very important. And so when you read through scripture, when you read in the Gospels, what's, what's a, a repetitious phrase that Jesus would say? Before he would speak, he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, he could have said, truly, I say to you. But he said, truly, truly. And the, the emphasis, the saying it twice, was emphasizing that he, he is saying, before I say something, I'm letting you know this is true. Before I even speak, you need to know that this is true. True truth. Ultimate truth. Truly, truly, I say unto you. And then, when you're thinking about the word holy, there are places in Scripture, in Isaiah 6, in the book of Revelation, where the angels are in God's presence. And what do the angels say? What, in, in Revelation, it says that the angels cry what? Holy, holy, holy. They're emphasizing strongly that God is holy. 
Holy is the only attribute of God. So as we went through those attributes of God. Love and peace and joy and justice and all those things that you could describe God. The word holy in scripture is the only attribute of God that is repeated multiple times. It's repeated three times. God is holy, 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 ultimate holiness, infinite holiness. So when the writers of the Bible wanted to emphasize the holiness of God, they said it three times. Three times he's holy. Not God is love, 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 or peace, peace, peace. God is holy, holy, holy. So what does it mean that God is holy? Holy comes from a word that means to separate or cut off. To separate or cut off. So it's the picture that God is separate than us. God is other than us. He is beyond us. He's separate or cut off from from us. He's different than us. He's not created. Otherness or transcendence. Totally other. We we are not like God. The Bible says in Genesis we are created in his image and after his likeness. But we are not like God in his full essence of who he is. He is holy. We are not holy. He is perfectly righteous and just and holy. We are incomplete and frail and weak. God is holy, holy, holy. To say that God is holy is to say that he is separate, transcendent, sacred, and set apart from every created thing. To say that God is holy is to say that there is no trace of evil in his character. It is impossible for God to lie, for God to have evil, or any sin in his character, because he is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah experienced the holiness of God, just like the nation of Israel in Exodus 19. They experienced the holiness of God. The mountain shook and there was lightnings and thunder and smoke and fire. Isaiah experienced the holiness of God. And we see that in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, says Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high, separate. Set apart, cut off, high, and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another. And what did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And listen to this picture. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Looks like Exodus 19. And what did Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. When you see the Lord in his holiness, when you see the king in his perfect righteousness and justice and holiness, your only response should be, woe is me. I am undone. I am unclean. I cannot dwell in the presence of this perfectly righteous God. It's impossible for me, apart from Christ, And what he's done on my behalf to dwell in the presence of God. Because God is holy, holy, holy. John experienced the holiness of God. Revelation 1, 12 through 17. This is John's on the Isle of Patmos. And the Lord's going to give him the vision of Revelation. And he's going to write down for us the book of Revelation about the end times. And what is going to transpire Before the coming of the Lord and after his coming and into into tribulation and when the new heavens and the new earth, when it descends down. And so the book of Revelation, John is about to write. But before he begins to write, the Lord wants to have an encounter with him. So he experiences Jesus. Revelation 1, 12 through 17. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one was like the Son of Man. This is Jesus. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his 
head were white. And the white symbolizes purity and perfect holiness and sinlessness. They were white. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. When God encounters people, you saw it. We saw it in Exodus 19. We saw it in Isaiah 6. There's fire that is revealed because God is perfectly righteous and just. He has fire in his eyes to judge sin. Has fire in his eyes. His feet were like burnished bronze. And, and when that, that picture of the burnished bronze, his feet, when he would come to render justice and judgment to the nations of the world that were that have rejected christ he comes with feet like burnished bronze to stamp out judgment when you read the book of revelation you got to read it and be prepared to see this is who god is this is who our god is he's not he's not he's not our best buddy that we hang out with and skip around the meadows with Though you can do that with Jesus, if you want to. This is God. This is who God is. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he, had, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And... His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Look at that picture of God. His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Can you imagine what John is experiencing right now? And listen to what happens. When I saw him, this, this, the, the son of God with eyes like flaming fire and white hair, and feet like burnished bronze, when I saw him, the brightness of the sun... When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I would think so. I would think so. That's what, that's our response. That's Isaiah's response. What was me? I can't, God, I can't dwell in this, in your presence, in the presence of your perfect holiness, your perfect righteousness, your perfect justice and your purity. I cannot dwell in your presence. Woe is me, I'm undone, I'm unclean. I live in in, in the midst of a people that are undone and unclean. We need to be purified. And that's what happened. That's what happened. That's what, that's what happened to Isaiah. It says that, that, that the angel took a coal off the altar and he put it on the mouth of Isaiah. Isaiah said his lips were unclean, so God purified him. And that's what happened in Exodus 19. God says, my people cannot talk to me unless they're purified first. There has, before we commune with God, we must be set apart and made separate and cut off from the world before we can come into the presence of this God. Because God is holy. He's holy. He's just. He's pure. He's righteous. And John said, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, for I am the first and I am the last. The God in Exodus 19 and Isaiah 6 and Revelation 1 is the same God that we worship today. He hasn't changed. God's character and his nature has not changed. We diminish the holiness of God as Christians. We don't like to talk about it because... It's difficult to hear. It's challenging to listen to. But if you have any view of any attribute of God, this must be the first one that you see. Before you can, listen, before you can understand his love and his peace and his joy, you must first see that he's holy and that you can't dwell in his presence. You must first respond as Isaiah responded in Isaiah 6. If you don't respond, if you don't see him in his holiness, then you can't respond like Isaiah responded, and you can't respond like John responded. And then if you can't respond in those ways, you can't have the right hand of God say, fear not. That's the view of God that we miss in church. In Christianity, God is holy. Because God is holy, we should stand in reverence and awe. We should respond just like Isaiah. Woe is me. Amen.
You guys ready to go home? <laughs> so what's the next truth that we see? First one, the most important, is that God is holy. He's separate from us. He's other than us. Second truth, let's, let's look at Exodus 19. Go back to the text. We're going to go backwards a little bit. We're going to go back to the part of the story where God is telling Moses to separate the people, to, 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 excuse me, to sanctify them and to cleanse them. Verses 10 through 13, it says, When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. You better be ready for that third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Wow. <laughs> we don't, that's, our minds can't comprehend this. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. The ones, The person who crosses that boundary, touches the base of the mountain. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain, but not touch it and not cross the boundary. You know, when I was reading this, thinking, what, what, what's the lesson? What's the truth? What is this? God is holy. Yes, I see it. I know it. God is holy. But what's the picture here? The second truth is this, is that just like Israel, we cannot touch the mountain. We, we can't. We can't touch it either. Apart from Christ, I can't go anywhere. I can't go a thousand f- miles close to that mountain. I can't get anywhere near the boundary. Apart from Jesus' work in, in my life, I can't touch the mountain either. Because I'm just like Israel. Israel, the overarching picture of Israel is that that's us. We're Israel. We're stone-hearted. We're stiff-necked. We, we, we look at the nation of Israel. And we see their wilderness journey and we see the 40 years in the wilderness and we hear their description of being stiff-necked and hard-headed. They don't really say hard-headed. That's just a Cajun term down here. What's, what, what, what's the Cajun term? A tête d'eur. We see that description and we oh, that's just those guys. That's some, they're so terrible. That is us. Israel is a picture of us. And our inability to do anything good in and of, of ourselves. Just like I talked about in, the, uh, in week two, we, we, like Israel, we tend to want to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back for the garlic and the leeks and the onions and the fish. They wanted to go back and get that stuff. And just like them, we like to look back towards Egypt and think that the things of Egypt, of the world, will satisfy. So Israel is us. Just like Israel, we too cannot touch the mountain. There is nothing, and what, what, what does that mean, we can't touch the mountain? It means this, there is nothing we can bring to God by our own efforts that will grant us access to Him and His presence. There's nothing that I can bring to the table to say, hey God, let me, let me on your mountain. Let me cross the boundary, please. I'm a pretty good guy. I've come to church. I sing worship songs. I read my Bible. I'm kind to my wife most of the time. Please let me worship it in, in your presence. There's nothing we can bring to God by our own efforts that will grant us access to him and his presence. False religion is founded upon that idea. False religious systems are founded upon the idea that we bring our best to a holy God to appease him so that he will give us access to his presence. That's what false religion teaches. The idea is we're going to climb up the mountain to get to the top so we can be in God's presence. We're going to climb up by our good works, climb up by our self-effort, climb up by pursuing God. And so then God's going to approve of us and say, well, you're a pretty good person. You've done so well. You can come into my presence. Is that how we get access to this holy God? We know that's not the case. We're going to look at that. More in just a few moments here. But that's what false religion is based upon. It's built upon a fundamental belief of self-improvement and self-effort. You're not going to get that good. I just promise you. You're still going to struggle. You're still going to have your weaknesses. Before you get to be in God's presence completely, 
in this process of becoming more like Christ, you are, you are not going to reach a place of perfection. Only whenever uh, this, this flesh is stripped and, and we're going to be clothed with a new, a, a new spiritual body. Only until then will we fully be in the Lord's presence. False religion says that we work our way up the mountain to get to God. Just like the Tower of Babel in Genesis. We're going to build a tower to get up to God. The Tower of Babel is a picture of false religion and their attempt to get to a holy God by self-effort. Isaiah 64, 6 says this. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our self-effort, all of our good works, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And I want to tell you what that polluted garment looks is describing. It's describing something that's polluted. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All of them. It amounts to nothing. If it's done out of wrong motives. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Ephesians 2 in the New Testament. It says that we, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot come anywhere near God's presence. We're, not only can we come anywhere near His presence, it's because, it's because we're dead. We're spiritually dead. Somebody who's spiritually dead can do nothing. You can't get into God's presence. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You didn't climb up the mountain to get to God. He said, okay, now because of what you've done, then you can be in my presence. No, by grace you've been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. What, what happens when we rely on our self-effort? Well, we like to pat ourselves on the back. We're full of spiritual pride and we, and we think, well, I've accomplished this and I've done this. Salvation is not your accomplishment. Salvation is your response to what Jesus did on the cross. That's, what, that's the only thing you had to do was say, uh-huh, yes. I realize I'm ridiculously dead <laughs> and I can't do anything to save myself. Yes, God, please, in view of your holiness... God, I surrender to what you did on my behalf. For we are his. Whose workmanship? This is so beautiful. I love it. We are his workmanship. Salvation is his work. It's his work. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what, what, when does the good works come in? After we are created anew. The good works are a result of being created anew in Christ Jesus. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the first truth we see in Exodus 19 is that God is holy. And sinful man can't go anywhere near the presence of a holy God. The second truth that we see is that, is that we are just like Israel. Apart from Christ, we are just like Israel. We cannot go near the boundary. We cannot touch the base of the mountain. We can't touch the boundary. So what's the solution? What is the solution in all of this? What's the answer? How, how, can, how is there hope? The hope is found in our third truth that we see. Let's look at Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the... Now, now excuse me, I, have to, I, I forgot to mention this. We, we're, we're switching to Exodus 20. So, Exodus 19 ends. They're trembling and they're afraid. And then you go into the beginning of Exodus 20 and God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. After the Ten Commandments are given, then... Moses comes down, and this is what happens. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood way away from that boundary. And Moses said, and, and said to Moses, this is what they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. God accomplished what he wanted to accomplish by, by showing us that, that, you, God, that he speaks to you. We're going to listen to you. But do not let God speak to us. Lest we die. Shows you the level of fear that they experienced because of this, what they saw. They felt like they were going to die. And so what, what, was, what was set up right there? Where's the hope? The hope is in the picture of who Moses is. Moses is a picture of Jesus. And so here's what's set up in Exodus 20, 21. It says, the, the people said, we don't want to talk to God. 
We want Moses to go talk to God. Moses was the first picture of a mediator between God and man. The children of Israel basically said, we need a mediator. We need somebody to go to God for us so that we can hear from God. Moses was a mediator. Moses is a picture of Christ. So what is a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. Someone who represents you. Someone who stands in on your behalf. Someone who is a go-between, who stands in on your behalf. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says this. It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. So my, my, my third point is this, is that just like Israel, we must have a mediator. If we're going to go into the presence of a holy God, we have to have a mediator just like Moses. And Jesus is that mediator. He is the one that is the go-between between a holy God and us. So what does it mean? What does it look like visually that Jesus is our mediator? Well, I just want to, I want to give a visual example of that. If I, if I can get Jesus to come up here and I can get Hitler to come up here. We got Jesus right here. So Jesus, stand about, stand about right there. It's good. Don't go too far. And Hitler is over here. You stop right there, Hitler. Now, this is actually Brader. And this is actually Derek. But for this example, there's Jesus and there's Hitler. And so here's the picture here. Hitler. No, Hitler's over here. (laughs) Hitler. I think last time I did this example, I I think Jesus was over here. But for, for those of you who've been in my foundations class, you've seen this example. I apologize. And if you were here a few Wednesdays back, you saw this. I apologize. But for all of of you who didn't, here's the example. So here's Hitler. Hitler, if we could create a chasm between him and Jesus, Jesus would have to go keep walking and never stop. Outside of this room, go all the way. What, south is that direction? Keep going towards Grand Isle, into Venice. Just keep going until he would never stop. That's the chasm between the, the most evil vile human being that ever lived, right? Is that how we view Hitler? The most evil, vile human that has ever lived, we believe is Hitler. And the chasm between them, between him and a holy God is endless. Do you guys agree with that? That's easy to believe. But what about me and you? Where do we land? Are we, are we over here with Hitler? Do we see ourselves right next to the most evil, vile, disgusting Man that ever lived? Are we next to Hitler in the, in the chasm there? Or, or are we over here? I think most of us put ourselves right in the middle. Isn't that about right? It's a good spot. Because I'm not as bad as Hitler. So how could I be all the way over there with Hitler? I must be a little bit closer to Jesus than Hitler because I never did the things that Hitler did. I never killed all the people that Hitler killed. I'm not like Hitler. I'm somewhere right here. And this is the picture, is that all of us, apart from the work of Christ being our mediator, we are right here with Hitler. Me and Hitler are buddies. We're best friends. We hang out on the weekend. That's what that I'm I am Hitler. You're Hitler. You're apart from Christ, you're evil just like him. And it takes a mediator. To be a go-between, to come in and to bridge the gap between Jesus and us and to bring us together. Between God and us and bring us together so we can dwell in the presence of a holy God. And so this is what happens when Jesus is our mediator. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, in the mediating work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, what it means is, is that the wrath of God that was due us, we think Hitler deserves a lot of wrath. But we deserve, apart from Christ, apart from faith and repentance, I deserve just as much as he, as, as he does. So what happens is, is that God takes all the wrath that was due us as sinful humanity and places it on the innocent Son of God. And when God, when God struck Jesus on the cross, Isaiah says, Isaiah 53 says it was the will of the Lord To crush Jesus. Why was it the will of the Lord to crush Jesus? Because Jesus had to absorb the wrath that me and Hitler were due. 
And so whenever he absorbed that wrath, he provided a way for me to stand justified, righteous in God's presence in the holy with holy God. And so this is what happens when I stand justified because of my faith in what Jesus did on my behalf. All right, Hitler. This is what happens. We can stand in God's holy presence. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that we become new creations in Christ Jesus. So if I could take Jesus and Hitler, or Jesus and myself, and superimpose them together, that's what happens. That's what happens. Thank you. We become new creations in Christ. Therefore, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Through 18. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they've received, they've received by faith the mediating work of Jesus. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The only way to go in God's presence is that the old has to be passed away. And the new has come. All this is from who? Who's the one who does the saving? Who's the one who does the mediating? It's from God. It's not the self-effort ladders. We're not climbing up the mountain. All this new creation work is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is so powerful. That is so good. So now, how do we stand in the presence of a holy God? It's because we've become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus accomplished that on our behalf because he was our mediator. And just like Israel needed Moses to be their mediator, we have to have Jesus as our mediator so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God. And when God looks at me... He doesn't see my self-effort or my good works as earning the right to stand there. He sees the blood of Jesus. He sees Jesus. He sees the cross. He sees the power of what Christ did on my behalf. Because of our faith in Jesus' mediating work on our behalf at the cross, we are no longer slaves to sin, but are now children of God. We are no longer under the wrath of God, but are at peace because of what Jesus accomplished. Amen? Amen. Holy God, sinful man, and God bridged the gap to the only one that could be the mediator, the perfect, holy, righteous Son of God. And by faith in that work, we now have access to a holy God. I want to fast forward my last truth. And this is I'm going to fast forward to Exodus 33. Moses quit talking to God on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. And he built the tent. He called it the tent of meeting. And he would go into the tent. And he'd meet with God outside of the camp. Where the children of Israel were camping. Sleeping. And he'd set up the tent of meeting. Apart from the children of Israel. And, and when Moses would go in. The cloud, the glory cloud would descend upon the tent and God would talk to Moses like a friend face to face. Let's read this account. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up because they knew God was about to talk. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses, Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. It's an interesting verse right here. When Moses turned again into the camp, he leaves the tent, goes back towards the camp. 
his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. That is just such a fascinating statement right there. And there's really not a lot of commentary on it. I've done some research and some study on it. Why did Joshua not depart from the tent? We really don't have a clear answer. But what I believe is that Joshua, when he saw the presence of the Lord descended in a cloud on the tent and Moses left, he was so enraptured at the sight and so in awe of the presence of God, he said, I'm not leaving that tent. I'm not leaving that place. He would not depart from the tent. So I've got a tent here this morning. I'm sure many of you are wondering why I had a tent on the stage. And so this is our tent of meeting this morning. The last time I was in this tent, I was in the tent with Billy Dishman and Matt Carnes. We all three slept right there. And it wasn't a very comfortable sleep. But for us this morning, this is the tent of meeting. So just imagine the glory cloud descending upon the tent of meeting and Moses is within the tent. And so I'm just picturing Joshua. I don't know how close he got to the tent, but he followed Moses out to the tent of meeting and Moses went in. The glory cloud descended. I would imagine Joshua's on his face as dead in the presence of God. And Moses leaves and Joshua just can't depart from the tent. He just doesn't want to go away from the tent because God's presence was here. God was here talking to Moses as a man, talks to a friend face to face. Can you imagine that? And so this is why I believe Joshua said, I'm not leaving right here. I'm staying here. I'm not going to depart. God was here. I want what Moses had. I'm staying by this tent. This is the most incredible news that we're going to end this message on. This is so amazing. In view of the holiness of God, in view that we cannot approach this holy God with eyes flaming like fire and feet like burnished bronze and and a tongue that's like a two-edged sword, in view of that, of who God is, and the reality that we have to have a mediator to bridge that gap, in view of all of that, Scripture says that we are the tent. If we are in Christ... And you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You are the tent of the very living God. His holy presence lives inside of you. Wherever you go to Walmart, and you're driving in your car, you're the tent of the holy God with eyes like flames of fire and feet like burnished bronze. You are the tent. This is what Scripture says. 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18. The Apostle Paul is addressing an issue of sin within the church in this context. And whenever you see the holiness of God, you never look at sin the same. When you understand that you are the tent where God dwells, sin takes on a different meaning. And that's what Paul says here. What agreement has the temple of God with idols, with, with idols, with sin, with false worship. For, for we are the temple of the living God. I mean, as I'm studying that this week, I'm thinking, Lord, this is too much to handle. I am the temple of this holy God that I see shook the mountain and came down with fire. I am that temple if I'm a believer in Jesus. God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We are the tent of the living God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The tent is like the mountain. And the mountain goes with us wherever we go. 
the Lord's presence is with us and within us. The same God who thundered and shook the mountain, who caused lightning and fire to descend, who is perfectly holy, who cannot look upon evil, is the same God who dwells in us as believers every single day. Doesn't that change your view of being in the Lord's presence? May we never, my fourth point, my fourth point I failed to say, my fourth point is this, just like Joshua, may we never depart from the tent. We must not depart from dwelling in God's presence. Doesn't that change your view of prayer? How often do we pray? And I think about our prayers for food. And we sit down and eat. And we say it real quickly. Do you know that when we pray over our food and we're communing with God, that we're communing with a holy God who lives on the inside of us? When we pray at these altars, we're praying to a holy God whose spirit lives on the inside of us. Our prayers are not common, but they're holy and they're sacred. Because we get to, because of the mediating work of Christ, we get to have his presence dwelling on the inside of us. And we get to commune with him on a daily basis. But how often do we not come to the tent of his presence and, and we, don't, we don't open it up? Because it's stuck. <laughs> Literally. And figuratively, we, we, we can't, we don't go in. Because our busy schedule stops us. And we, we, and we go and we're busy and we're, we're tired and we can't go in. But when we realize who we're communing with and the opportunity that we have, we will live in that tent. We'll never want to leave. So the overarching lesson in all of this for me, as I was studying Exodus 19, I thought when I was looking at it, Lord, this is such a heavy message. I think what I felt as I was studying and praying is that I just wanted to remind all of us of who God is, first of all. And I wanted to remind all of us that are believers what he's done on our behalf. And then I wanted to remind all of us the privilege that we have. The sacred and holy privilege that we have to bring our prayers and petitions to Him. The sacred and holy privilege we have as we gather as a family of believers on Sunday mornings and Wednesdays. We gather and we lift up holy hands and we worship God. What a sacred privilege it is because of who God is and what He's done. Amen? Why don't you stand to your feet with me? I want to read this last scripture. Derek read it during worship. It's Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a high priest who is our mediator, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, to a holy God, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that's what I want us to do. As we leave this morning, let's take a few moments before you leave, and they're going to sing a song, and let's worship this holy God together.
Hallelujah, Lord. We praise your name this morning. We exalt, lift high the name of Jesus, who alone is worthy to be praised. Alone is worthy to be praised. God, we thank you that we are the temple of the living God, of the holy God. And we can praise your name every single day. We can dwell in your tent, dwell in your presence. God, we thank you that we have that privilege, Lord. And may we never take it for granted. May we never lose the wonder of that reality. That we are your tent, we are your dwelling place. Because of what Jesus has done for us. May we leave this morning different than when we came in. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you have seen God as a holy God, and you see Him for who He is this morning, and you want to surrender to Jesus, we want to pray for you this morning. So if that is you, when we dismiss in prayer, when I dismiss in prayer, I want to meet you down here. Our pastors will be down here, and we want to pray with you. Lord, I thank you for this service. I thank you that we have had the privilege of worshiping you. I thank you that we see you for who you really are. And may we live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.